This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As festive holidays near, entertain family with good cheer from the Southern Foodways Alliance Guide to Cocktails. Editors Sarah Camp Milam and Jerry Slater consult their cocktail cabinet to bring you over 100 recipes for liquid refreshment. Envish Bot of Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi offers recipes for cocktail bites. Pick up your copy today and buy one for a friend. There's a link at southernfoodways.org where you may purchase the book. While you're online, consider making a donation to the SFA. Donations fund all our work, including this podcast. Too few people regard intoxicating spirits as agricultural products despite the fact that these distillates are crafted from many of the very same crops we cook in our kitchens and serve at our dinner tables. You know where this is going, right? There are some exceptions. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. A handful of distillers around the country regard their craft as agricultural. They work the farm to still to bottle continuum. For gravy, Shanna Farrell travels to Charleston, South Carolina to explore how one distillery focused on capturing a taste of place takes its cues from the farm and culinary world. Historically, distilling was a way of preserving food. Apples were turned into cider, pears into brandy, and grains into whiskey. Somewhere along the way, probably because of the Industrial Revolution, people began to be less connected to where their alcohol was coming from. But for me, how a distiller captures a crop sense of time and place is what makes their spirits interesting. So this makes me ask, is whiskey food? Can it have terroir? Those questions are what brought me to Highwire Distilling Company in Charleston, South Carolina. The big boys, especially in the whiskey industry, talk about the water and age. And they might say the grain bill, but they're just saying corn, barley, and wheat. And I'm like, you know, that's a big part of it. So let's drill down into that. I'm Scott Blackwell. And my name is Ann Marshall. I'm the co-founder of Highwire Distilling Company in Charleston, South Carolina. Highwire was founded in 2013, opened in September of that year. Most whiskey distillers talk about mash bills. That is, the percentage of grain it's made from. They talk about aging techniques, yeast strains, climate, even the type of wood that barrels are made with. But there's very little discussion about the actual raw material. This conversation is often disconnected from agriculture, but there are a few producers around the country who think about this and carefully consider where they source their grains from. Among those producers are Ann Marshall and Scott Blackwell. 
Both had careers in the food world before opening the distillery. I started a business in college, pie business, and that morphed into an ice cream distributorship with Ben & Jerry's. Left, went and opened a restaurant. Got really into coffee as part of that. Ended up buying a roaster and became a micro roaster in South Carolina, which you know, in those days there, there were none. Sold the restaurant and ended up distributing the coffee. And then my baked goods were sort of famous around town. So I decided to start selling those in Immaculate Baking, started in a garage, and then, you know, grew it up and sold it to General Mills and started Highwire. I started working in the food business in 2002. Um, Actually, my first job out of college was at Scott's former company, Immaculate Baking, and I was the director of marketing there and left in about 2009 to become a consultant for other small natural and organic food brands and would help them develop their packaging, develop their product, really take their products to market. It was only natural then that they let this connection with food guide them when they opened the distillery in 2013. When we started Highwire, neither one of us had worked or ever distilled anything legally or illegally. I mean, just like four and a half years ago, it was still very pioneer era. There weren't a lot of guys making money in the craft distilling world. And South Carolina has not been known as a whiskey producing state. We were not lucky enough to obtain any of our distilleries after Prohibition. When we got started, we were very focused on making the best possible spirit, and we just weren't sure that we were actually going to use local grains. We didn't know that they were available or that we could orchestrate a contract farming situation, and we just wanted a consistent supply of ingredients. Marshall and Blackwell share an entrepreneurial spirit and a natural curiosity, which allowed them to be open-minded about their approach to distilling. It's also what led them to sorghum, a drought-resistant cereal grain known for its sweetness, which they sourced from Muddy Pond in Tennessee. We had learned about Muddy Pond, so we ordered a 50-gallon drum of sorghum syrup, which is just the richest, most phenomenal syrup I've ever eaten. It's replaced all cane-based syrup in our house. And we distilled it, and it smelled like apples in here. I mean, it, the distillate came off just with this beautiful nose. That was really when the light bulb went off of like, oh, wow, when you put this ingredient in and you leave it alone, you just put some yeast and try to do as little to it as possible, and then it comes out of the still, it tastes completely different than other ingredients. You know, So it's not just alcohol. So that was definitely, like Scott says, the biggest aha moment of this is that farm. Like, what's around it? Is there an apple orchard next to it? And what's contributing to this? And and they have a very specialized process. It's a Mennonite farm. They plow the fields with draft horses. They, They do most of their harvesting with a tractor. The reason that we use their sorghum syrup exclusively is not just because it's the best, but also because they incorporate the grain in the syrup. So it's the whole plant. And as a whiskey producer, in order for it to be called whiskey, it has to have the grain in it. It was what I was hoping for, that we would find this thing that was where, you know, what we put in there mattered. And that was the first time that we had distilled something that came from a single farm that we could actually assign a specific location. Prior to that, we were using corn from a mill in North Carolina that we had purchased flour from. 
back in the baking days and made us think that we we could make a fine business just distributing in South Carolina, but it's so much more fun to take what we do out into the region and into New York and, and have a little bit of South Carolina on a bar at Union Square Cafe. I mean, that's that's really, really exciting for us, especially as food people. After their revelation with sorghum, they continued on their path as an agriculturally-minded distilling team. They took on the Bradford Watermelon to make a brandy, one of the three oldest surviving North American watermelons, which was on the brink of extinction just a few years ago. After the brandy, they produced an agricole rum made from local sugarcane. Agricole, usually spelled R-H-U-M, differs from regular rum, spelled R-U-M, because it's made from cane juice as opposed to molasses. Agricole has more terroir, reflective of how and where the sugarcane was grown. Anne's mother is friends with an old farmer who grows a little patch and makes some syrup every fall. And he said, you need to make some rum with my sugar cane. And he kept saying it. Well, then we started getting a little more serious, and we figured out he didn't really have enough cane. So we started to look around, and there was another group up that way. And we hustled up there. Right after Thanksgiving, they had a horizontal press, pressed the cane, got the juice, tasted grassy, green banana, delicious, sweet, earthy. It's yeast, dirt, bacteria, everything going into that container put it in a U-Haul, drive it back here as fast as you can because you've got premature fermentation kind of started, pitch some commercial yeast on it and get it into a temperature-controlled environment and then distill it. The fermentation was like no other that we had seen and the distillation was like no other. And I'm like, this is this place. And that to me is really cool. Marshall and Blackwell's work with regional crops became an essential part of the distillery's identity. How do we differentiate ourselves from these big companies? We need to cut our own path, and it doesn't mean we're just using a different yeast strain or we're local. You know, you distribute your products to the U.K. They think it's cool and quaint that you've bought the grains locally, but is there anything special about that local that tells them something about that spirit and about you? Distilling from this perspective led them to Jimmy Red corn, a land race grain that takes its name from James Island, just south of Charleston. A couple things happened at the same time to just make it all come together for us. One thing is we met Glenn Roberts. I'm Glenn Roberts, and I'm president of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, which is the most important thing that I do. And I also am the founder of Anson Mills, which does its little share to try to keep old things happening for people to eat. When we return, what happened when Glenn Roberts introduced Ann Marshall and Scott Blackwell to Jimmy Red? We talk about what it took to grow that variety, and we talk, too, of how that corn exemplifies the agricultural richness of South Carolina. If you believe in the power of stories and language here on Gravy, SFA suggests you tune into the Sierra Club's new podcast, The Land I Trust. It's an audio series that features people sharing personal stories about their South, a place that's in transition due to climate change. From farming families in West Virginia, to people suffering from coal ash pollution in North Carolina, to climate refugees in Florida, you'll hear narratives about how the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is affecting lives. 
The Land I Trust offers personal stories from Southerners in five episodes. Listen to The Land I Trust at beyondcoal.org slash stories or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Robert's work with Anson Mills is dedicated to preserving food heritage through native seed collecting. His interest in this began with rice and later corn. He would drive down rural roads looking for antebellum corn. This search led him to a bootlegger's field in South Carolina in 1997. It was from there that he learned about the potential of land-raised grains for commercial distilling, including Jimmy Red Corn. We talked to Glenn, and he said, well, you know what you should be using is Jimmy Red Corn. And, and Scott and I were like, what's well, Jimmy Red Corn? We never heard of it. And he said, well, you've never heard of it because it's really not a thing. It's down to two cobs of corn, almost went extinct. Jimmy Red Corn is easily identified by its deep red color. Here's Roberts again. Jimmy Red is after James Island corn, but here... James Island Red, or Jimmy Red, survived, and that's another heirloom that we helped bring back. Roberts was alerted to this corn by Ted Chuning, a Walterboro, South Carolina native. Roberts credits Chuning with bringing it back from the brink of extinction. One human being, this is how it works, who saved it from oblivion. And Ted got it, and he said, look what I got. This is cool. I thought this was gone. I'd never even heard of the corn until Ted mentioned it. At that time, Sean Brock had gotten some seed from Glenn via Ted Tuning, who was given the two cobs, the original two cobs, from a moonshiner's family. And they told Ted, this corn is amazing. Our dad was making whiskey out of this corn his entire life, and we don't want this corn to go away. It's really special. Marshall says that it was Chef Sean Brock of the restaurants Husk and McGrady's who kick-started the Jimmy Red phenomenon in Charleston by putting it on his menus. He was using it for cornmeal and just really passionate about this corn. And Glenn told us a little bit about that, and he said, but this is hands down going to be one of the finest whiskey corns you'll ever find. There wasn't enough of it in the world for us to even distill at that point. We needed a 1,000 pounds, and it hadn't been grown really to that scale yet. Marshall and Blackwell got to work on trying to grow enough Jimmy Red to turn into whiskey. They started out by connecting with Clemson University and assembling a team of agricultural scientists and farmers who could help them in their pursuit. Clemson University has a fantastic research farm about 15 minutes south of Charleston and started working with Dr. Brian Ward, who was just looking for experiments. He's been working with Glenn for a while now, and, and David Shields, a professor at University of South Carolina, has a, is sort of in that clubhouse too. And these guys are seedsmen. They are researching seeds that were available historically in South Carolina, crops that were grown here. David researches old recipes and finds varieties. That sort of combination of people who were 
actively, passionately pursuing the revival of grains that so quickly disappeared in the second half of the 20th century. Marshall and Blackwell worked closely with Clemson to grow and harvest their first crop of Jimmy Red. Since they didn't yet know how viable this corn would be as whiskey, they started with just two and a half acres. I went out to the field and ran behind the tractor as the seeds were going in the ground, watching it germ come up to your knee, flaming the fields at 5.30 in the morning. Glenn was with us, Brian was with us, Ted was with us all through this process. The first crop at Clemson was like a first baby. We have pictures of every single move that it made. We were out there once a week just looking at it, talking to it, singing to it. Things became more complicated when harvest time came. It poured the week before we were supposed to harvest it, and Brian Ward called us, and he said, you got any friends? (laughs) Because I think we're going to need to get this out by hand. And I was like, that's awesome. I'd love to do that. And we got everybody we could to go out there, and Glenn was out there with us, and we picked a row. Everybody had their own row, and we just chatted and talked, and... It was the best day. You know, you really felt like, you know, you knew what community farming was all about. And it was so special for that to be our first harvest. After the first Jimmy Red crop was harvested, it needed to be cleaned and milled before it could be cooked into a mash and then distilled. We didn't even have a mill at that point. Glenn took it up to his place in toward Columbia and cleaned the seed and dried it down and then got it to all milled for us and he would mill it and then get it to us and we would make a batch immediately then he'd mill some more. We got it in the distillery and mashed it in and the most remarkable thing about Jimmy Red is that when it ferments it creates a three inch thick oil cap on top of the mash which we had never seen before. I mean it was just unheard of and we asked around to distillers who'd been in the business a lot longer than we had and Their answer was, you know, occasionally there's a little slick on top, like a little puddle, maybe. But this was three inches of thick, beautiful corn oil that smelled like, for lack of a better reference, banana Laffy Taffy. And we blended it all back in the mash and sent it over to the still. So when it finally came off the still a week later and I tasted it, I was like, oh, wow, okay, we should have grown... 50 acres of this. So when you taste it, it's got this crazy viscosity, incredible mouthfeel that really just enhances the spirit. They discovered that their Jimmy Red bourbon had a unique flavor, one they realized was representative of the land on which it was grown. It's a great example of sort of that not all tomatoes are created equal, not all mushrooms not all corns or wheats or rice. They all have their own distinct flavor, and their place of where they're grown does matter. After their initial success with their inaugural batch of Jimmy Red, they decided to grow more. They now grow it in three places, including Lavington Farms and the Ace Basin. The Ace Basin stands for the Ashpoo, Cumbie, and Adisto Basins in South Carolina's Low Country, one of the largest undeveloped estuaries on the East Coast. Jimmy Haygood, whose family has been farming in the Ace Basin for generations, runs Lavington Farms. He was working with Glenn Roberts on some Charleston gold rice when Roberts asked him if he'd be interested in growing Jimmy Red corn. I'm Jimmy Haygood from Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm fourth generation here at Lavington Farms. 
and after talking with Scott and Ann, because in the past we had grown corn and other grains for wildlife, we at that point in time didn't care whether the wild hogs and the deer came and ate it, because that was kind of part of the plan to attract them in. We decided that, hey, we know how to plant, we have some equipment, possibly could we participate in this Jimmy Red corn production. This year has been our third year of growing and harvesting Jimmy Red corn, and the third year is the charm. I had the opportunity to visit Lavington Farms with Marshall and Blackwell to see Haygood's Jimmy Red crops during the 2017 harvest. As he explains, it grows in different areas of the farm. We basically have uh, fields one, two, three, four, and five. And so those comprise about 12 acres or so. When we arrive at Lavington, we drive through a canopy of lush trees, their green leaves casting deep shadows over the road. Blackwell points out the field of Charleston gold rice, which is set off the road as we snake our way through the farm. We stop in front of a row of desiccated brown stalks rising above tall, spiny grass. This is one of the Jimmy Red crops. Most of it has been harvested earlier in the week, but Haygood tells us that he left a row intact for our visit. You don't take as many cobs as you want. That big guy. Oh man. Wow. Jeez. We make our way over to a large truck. It's bed filled with blood red kernels. I mean, this thing is pretty full. Come on, Scott, you need to see all this. It's rare that people get to visit the farms where the corn for their bourbon is grown, and this trip helps me to understand the connection between the whiskey and the Ace Basin. Highwire's first batch of Jimmy Red Bourbon was released in December 2016. It sold out in just 11 minutes. We opened it up probably 11 a.m. and it was total chaos. In the moment, I just was crossing my fingers that we had enough product that we weren't overselling it because we had sales going on in the tasting room, but we had also opened it up to reserving it online. I was getting notices on our register faster than I could even process them in my brain. But, And we had set a limit in the register system, and 11 minutes in, it, it said, done. So it didn't really sink in until that afternoon. Scott got back, and, and he looked at me, and he said, well, where's our bottle? <laughs> we had sold our bottle. We sold every single bottle that was in the building. Yeah, I mean, I would say I was a little sad, too, um, because... They're again babying it and then checking the barrels every few weeks and there at the end. Then it was gone. Back at the distillery, I tried some Jimmy Red. I tasted four versions of it, three unaged from each of the farms that they source from, and one that had been aged for two years. The difference in taste of the four expressions was undeniable. They were all slightly varied with unique flavors particular to their geography. One was more vegetal, one had more minerality, and one had a little more of that banana Laffy Taffy flavor that Marshall had mentioned. They were all made from a 100% corn mash bill, which is rare because a spirit only needs to be 51% corn to be considered bourbon. This lets the actual raw material shine through. They all had terroir, or a sense of place. So I think we're sort of at that first wave of a few folks really thinking a little more deeply about that. 
so I think you're going to see it evolve a lot. You know, and heirloom grains are going to play a big part in that. That is the future of our distillery. Um, we make a lot of products. The Jimmy Red bourbon is is the thing that we are building towards. Highwire's Jimmy Red bourbon made me feel connected to whiskey in a way that I had never experienced, sating both my curiosity and my palate. If this is the future of distilling in the South, I can't wait to see what they and others who are kindred do next. Shanna Farrell of the UC Berkeley Oral History Center is the author of Bay Area Cocktails, A History of Culture, Community, and Craft. Her writing has appeared in Punch and the San Francisco Chronicle. She hosts the Pre-Fee podcast about the intersection of food and drink. You can learn more about her work and this episode at our website. That's southernfoodways.org. Also there are links to the music from this episode. Speaking of music, our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam. Our intern is Robin Miniter. When you surf to our website, and we hope you will, please consider a donation. Your gifts make gravy and all other SFA media possible. One more thing before you go. Please remember, as you go about your day, make cocktails, not war.